and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guests today are the two co-founders behind Evidently AI, where they build open source tools to analyze and monitor machine learning models. CEO Elena Samulova was previously the head of the startup ecosystem at Yandex. Director of Business Development at their Data Factory and Chief Product Officer at Mechanica AI. And CTO Emily Dral was previously a data scientist at Yandex, Chief Data Scientist at their Data Factory and Mechanica AI, in addition to teaching machine learning both online and at multiple universities. Welcome to, to Machine Learning Engineered. And if you could both say your names at the start so that the audience will know your voices, Elena, if you can go first. Uh, hi, my name is Elena, and I'm glad to join today. Hi, my name is Emily, and I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, like I said, it's great to have you here. And the question that I always get started with all of our guests is, how did each of you first get interested in data science and machine learning? And it's interesting because you both are coming at it seemingly from two different sides. So Emily, maybe you can go first. Yeah, Sure. I need to say that for me, it was more a practical choice than an interest, because when I was a third year student, I started thinking about my career perspectives and about future job. And I started searching for job offers in big IT companies. And this is how I basically found Yandex, which is the Google of Russia, big Russian um, search engine. And I figured out that I figured out that I need to learn a lot of uh, technical things to have a chance to get an internship. And I found, uh, Yandex, founded uh, Yandex School of uh, Data Analysis. 
Yes, and uh, there I actually meet with uh, data science and machine learning. And uh, as for about interest, I believe literally everything is interesting. I didn't think so. But I believe it's always good to make a choice where you want to invest a majority of your time. And I just, uh, yeah, I just choose data science. In my case, I came from a little bit different background. So I actually studied economics and business. But very early on, I understood that I want to go into the IT sector, like broadly. I was actually myself an early adopter of different technologies from the very beginning. So it was a bit of like an intersection of a personal interest and uh, where I thought a lot of things are happening. And originally I joined Yandex and I was actually working there with startups. I was running a startup accelerator. It was an incredible experience because I I was introduced to so many new technologies, basically everything that was on the forefront. And uh, then Yandex launched this internal startup called Yandex Data Factory. The idea was that let's apply all the machine learning technologies that Yandex had internally to the outer world. And I just thought that it's like, okay, this is an opportunity I don't want to miss because it's clearly something new and very exciting happening. And to introduce a little bit of background, it was 2014. It was actually very early. No one even used the word uh, artificial intelligence back then. It was still in the AI winter, I would say. So it was like literally the chance to see something from the very beginning. And ever since, I basically stayed working with this technology from different angles, from the business side, from product side. And yeah, that's how I ended up building a career basically here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting to have, uh, like you said, the Google of, be at the Google of, of Russia and have them, like you said, spinning off this extremely early technology into into its own thing. And if I understand correctly, that was enterprise ML consulting for that they would go out? Okay. And now it seems like that has transformed a little bit into the into kind of like the Google Cloud equivalent or where they're building mostly a platform for that? Exactly. So that was more or less the direction. But the four years that we spent working there, we were working with uh, different clients, implementing uh, basically custom solutions using machine learning and the data that these clients had. And it was spanning from uh, telecom, retail, healthcare to manufacturing. Because basically back then, uh, especially at the very beginning, everyone was just like trying to figure out what exactly can we do with it. So now there are a lot of discussions like how exactly, where to start, what to prioritize. Back then it was basically, does it even work? Like how is it different from BI? How is it different from what we've been doing before? What is the value? And so we were like working with many different companies uh, together trying to figure out how exactly to apply this technology. Mm -hmm. And it was it at the data factory or was it before that you two started to meet each other and started working together? It was at the Yandex data factory. So it was uh, almost seven years. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. And I want to dig into a little bit of the, of some of the things that you discovered while you were working at the data factory. Of course, like we said before, it was very early and even now I, a lot of companies are experiencing a lot of the same problems that presumably you both faced while you were consulting for a lot of these places. So Emily, maybe you can start. What were some of the challenges on the technical side of working at a lot of these, of applying machine learning at a lot of these enterprises? Oh, <laughs> that's a really good question for me. But yeah, I worked at Yandex. We had we really have a lot of different tools and uh, libraries which were and are uh, really nice now. And I believe the most uh, complications were on more on business side. But maybe they <laughs> will disagree with me because of, of course for me it's more uh, complicated because I'm a technical specialist. 
And I believe it's uh, quite complicated to create the problem statement that will fit both business goal and be suitable for some mathematical limitations or how to say it. So Elena, maybe you can jump in and uh, talk about some of the business side of that. Yeah, so actually, I think Emily is exactly right that like formulating the problem statement, I think it's still one of the major problems in the enterprise, because if you look at more like online companies, I don't know, e-commerce, or even Yandex and companies where you have like real time machine learning for ages, it's a little bit more straightforward where you can apply it. You still have to solve a lot of technical challenges, how to do it in real time, how to uh, serve it at the required latency. How to, so there's a lot of technical engineering problems. But when you come to the enterprise, in many cases, you don't really have like big data. You don't really have uh, real-time use cases. But what you have is the need to convert the data that you have to somehow usable solution. And you approach a little bit as like a hammer in search of a nail. So you think, hey, I want to apply this technology here because we know it's cool, because we know it's potentially valuable. So how exactly we do it? And especially in the early days, there is like a really huge kind of incentive to just to do whatever you have the data you have. It's not really always converts into a usable solution. So how you formulate the problem statement, how you choose the metrics, and how you choose the right use case. Because in many situations, you can have a pilot, you can have a successful model with reasonably high quality, but then you will end up in a situation when you cannot really deploy it, when you cannot really scale it, because you didn't really think through the edge cases, you didn't really prepare all the business process around it to deal with the model errors or issues that might arise from the usage of this model. And there was a lot of managing of expectations that we had to figure out how to do, because on the enterprise side, uh, a lot of business leaders, they are following hyped expectations. So they literally expect someone to come up with an oracle where you can ask all the possible questions and it will tell you all the possible answers just because you threw data to some very clever data scientist. And bridging these two, so there's these very high expectations and then the realistic data that you have and find the use case where you can already generate value. This is the more art than science. And especially in the early days, it was like yeah, trying to just understand these use cases to get with the customers. That was a huge learning. Uh, and I would say in general, understanding like how to communicate the what's possible with the technology, what's not possible, what are the limitations. For me, it was also a learning experience because obviously I just came as a newcomer and I was learning everything about the technology. I was talking to Emily, I was talking to the scientists, and then I was talking to the customers and I was trying, like, okay, so how do we bridge these <laughs> things based on what's possible and based on what they expect? That was a major problem, but also an exciting challenge to solve. What were the kind of archetypes, if you will, of clusters of the different problems or use cases that you might use that you found that was that companies had the data for and you were able to generate that clear problem statement and provide value even if it wasn't a, like you said, maybe the customer's expectation of an Oracle? I think now it's more or less obvious because if you open up any website of any uh, consulting company or uh, systems integrates or even the vendor, you would have these use cases. But like now the churn prediction would be like the number one that uh, every vendor comes up just to demonstrate the technology. But back then, for example, we had to figure out whether we're actually like, predicting churn, whether we're trying to segment the customers or what exactly we're solving. So in the end, we had identified like rules of thumb, how you can prioritize these use cases. So this is this has to be something high volume decision-making where you can actually automate it with reasonable risk to, so that you can accept it, that something goes wrong, it's still not such a big issue, you can deal with it. And it's something 
that is large enough to justify the use of this technology. Because sometimes you might get at least one, five, three percent improvement over something, but it will not end up meaningful for a large company. Even though, yes, it would be a nice use case, a nice model, and maybe you will save a little bit of cost. So to come specifically use cases, it would be like demand prediction, like term prediction in telecom and uh, all the consumer companies, all sorts of marketing personalization, like personalizing the offers, how you send them, and so on. And lastly, it was manufacturing, and this is actually what we later decided to do as a separate startup, which was an incredibly exciting world of how you can apply machine learning to the optimization of process manufacturing and in general, like production processes. That's a pretty interesting direction. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk all about that in a little bit. But before we get to that question for, for Emily, being able to look at, look across all those different industries, like you mentioned, telecom, manufacturing, was do you, would you say that the technical approaches to a lot of these solutions was more similar or more different across industries? Like how transferable are all these things? Or would you have to create more custom solutions for a specific industry? Um, I believe that algorithms are more or less the same and you can use the same, for example, linear regression or random forest model for retail or for manufacturing and it still works. But the way how you process your data, how you collect it, how you aggregate it, they're different. Because, for example, when it comes to some online services or even uh, offline retail, it's also the area where you have a lot of customers and you have a lot of user-generated data, then it's uh, a bit easier to aggregate this data and create a clean, useful data set. But when it comes to manufacturing, for example, you have a lot of uh, sensor data, so it's data that are generated automatically, and it's even uh, hard to create some data set because you need first to aggregate and somehow connect the data from sensors to objects like steel pieces or something like this. I believe that this first data preprocessing are really different, and you need to have some experience and, let's say, knowledge about the uh, business problem or technological process to do it. But uh, when you already have a clean, nice data set, then you can use the standard tools and libraries to come up with good machine learning model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest learning for me as well, working in the industry, is the need for working very closely with domain experts on exactly what that data means. In a lot of cases, you'll, like you said, you have, even though your data set might be clean, you might have a column where you think it's one thing, it ends up being a completely different thing. And I want to transition now to talking more about that industrial manufacturing use cases, because of course you were both co-founders for Mechanica AI, which as I understand it is a machine learning platform for industrial process improvement. Is that how you might explain it? Yeah, so we were working with the different use cases that we deployed for industrial customers using this data that comes from the machine. So it was specifically focused on the uh, production side of industrial manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And being that a lot of our my listeners are generally in the U.S., it seems like, and I think we definitely have a, or I know that the U.S. has a much less industrialized economy, much less manufacturing in general than, and of course, where you're from. So can you briefly summarize maybe on both the business side and then on the technical side of what the some of the differences are between that industrial manufacturing use case versus what, what we in the U.S. probably encounter more, which is that uh, IT solution? Actually, I would say that we worked with customers from different countries, from Mexico, U.S., Germany, Austria, and the uh, 
all over the world. And actually, industrial manufacturing is surprisingly even in all these places, just because you would typically have like steel production, for example, metal companies. You have only a few large companies in each country which are serving basically the same global customer base. So they have to be competitive. So they have to use the same technologies and apply them. So there are actually a lot of similarities. They typically use the same vendors and so on. But talking about specifically the use cases, just to explain where we apply it, I think that's the most exciting part, is that imagine you have some technological process. So you don't really need to understand how steel is produced or how chemicals are produced. It's always some sort of mixing and matching and processing different ingredients with the idea that you want to get to the desired quality. And the challenge is usually that it's not exactly a lab environment where you can perfectly control everything that happens. There is always uh, some variations in the process. You have different raw materials. You have slightly different uh, technological parameters of the process. Maybe even like outside temperature, humidity will influence whatever is going on in the shop floor. And typically, all the processes are controlled using some machine and using some uh, control system and the human who is an operator, an expert in the process, who sits there and tweaks the parameters of the process in the real time. And uh, what we were doing, we were creating models that would help this operator to control the process better, either by predicting what's going to happen soon so that you can intervene. For example, if we expect some decrease in the quality of the process, or even by directly suggesting what to do. For example, like right now, you should put this amount of this ingredient to get to the desired quality of the end product without sacrificing the uh, potential like issues that might occur. And interestingly, this is no different from what manufacturing was doing for ages. Just before, they were using more classic optimization techniques. They're using thermodynamic models. They were using some statistical process control, but using some simpler techniques. And now you can add basically additional layer using machine learning applied to the historical data of how the machine operated to do the same thing. So that's what we were doing. And compared to IT companies, that is completely different world. They even use the word OT, which is operational technology, not IT, because this data that comes from this machine, it's, it's stored in the systems of their own, in the database on their own, and just even getting there and extracting this data is an issue, is a challenge. You have to solve it first before you can understand what's going on there. So this is completely different, basically, IT setting that you have to work with before even you come to the use case. So you have to access this data, you have to analyze it, you would have several layers of systems that are operating. They use the uh, level. So there's like level one, level two, level three system that aggregate the data from sensors on different layers. And this is a different environment. So you have to uh, tap into. What might be an, an example of, of the difference between that, the different levels of those sensors, just to give uh, some more clarity for those of us who aren't uh, in, who haven't, don't have any idea of manufacturing and the instrumentation? We're talking about like really high volume time series data. So some of them might be producing like the millisecond level. So there are sensors that are producing something at the millisecond level, and it might be used for immediate process control on the machine. Then there would be a second layer, which actually aggregates this information a little bit and stores it for some maybe longer term storage. And for example, the challenge is that the data that you might have in real time is slightly different from the data that you actually have historically available to train your model. And as a data scientist, you might understand that this is actually a very big deal because you train on one data, and then all of a sudden, when you go to the production environment, the data is provided at a different sampling rate, or even actually has a different meaning, like slightly different sensors. So this is a very complex environment to, to start working with. Yeah, that's true. 
For example, it can be some, just to bring, to make it more practical, it can be some temperature sensors or hum, uh, humidity sensors. And you can have, for example, on level two, uh, really real-time data. But for level one, you can have some aggregation using some specific uh, formulas. And if you do not know how exactly it was aggregated, it's really hard to transform or to prepare your system to uh, work with the real-time data and take into account patterns you learn from historical data because there is very uh, rare cases where you actually can use raw data for um, training your machine learning model because it's huge amounts of data. It's really a lot and it's hard even much. This is all together. Are there some key differences that you, Emily, have noticed on the technical side of the data management of these of these companies where, like you said, it's extremely high frequency time series data and it's similar in some ways to that we to uh, what we see at tech companies and different in a lot of ways what will be some of the key differences and maybe some of the things that they do maybe better than a lot of IT companies. Yeah, I believe there's quite a lot of differences. And first is that they use absolutely different tools to store data and to collect data, and they use uh, their specific protocols. So sometimes it's really hard to use some standard or open source tools or databases to actually load this data and uh, work with them officially, efficiently. For example, you don't, you can't always use some row columns databases to work with this data because it's a high frequency time series and sometimes they use some specific uh, algorithms to store it efficiently and you need to know these protocols and i believe it's sometimes more convenient to go to their servers and use their libraries and tools to interact this data and generally you know, do not know these technologies and you need to learn it before you actually start interacting with uh, this data Another thing is that the data they use are comes from mass systems or APC systems, and sometimes it's data about, for example, a hundred uh, temperature sensors, and it's all correlated data, and you cannot just run your machine learning algorithm over hundreds of correlated features, right? So you need to select something or come up with uh, good feature uh, features after feature engineering, and this is something you need to know. And I believe my favorite case is the times they use because sometimes you can expect that you can that you have equal time zones for all your data, but sometimes it's not the case, and you need to know how to transform one data, one date time to another date time to make it all in the same scale. And it's not IT companies, so they not always use their historical data to perform some analysis. And sometimes nobody even knows how to transfer it because they used uh, this data in real time, but they were not going to <laughs> reuse it again later on. And it's sometimes uh, hard because trying, what you're trying to do is to match it by patterns somehow, maybe find some specific moments that you can see in data and maybe shift all the data into one scale. It's interesting, but you have no guarantees that you made it right. I be creative. <laughs> you need to be really creative in doing this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I can see why you, it's starting to, the picture is starting to come out of why you are so focused on data monitoring, because obviously when you, like you said, you have these tons of different sensors, you can't possibly have someone monitoring all of the data that comes in. You have so many things that could fail at any time. These are, of course, like real life sensors, not just things that were instrumented in a piece of software and that are perfectly consistent. It's 
like you said, a temperature reading that could be off in some way and is actually guaranteed to be off in a lot of ways because it has it's weighted for its precision. But what were some of the solutions, the technical solutions that you had come up with to be able to deal with both the state of quality issues and all of the other things that came up with the, these challenges? We had different way of technologies to solve uh, these issues. First, I believe, is using the fallback system. It's one of my favorites because machine learning system can always fail due to data quality issues. And it's also always good to have some different kinds of models that can answer in different situations. So this is uh, something that we tried to do. So we use two or three levels of different systems from the most stable, like constant, that gives you, for example, a really simple recommendation recommendations are very simple forecasts, but they are really robust and works <laughs> every time like in any situation. And the second system in fallback can be a simple statistical model or a simple machine learning model that doesn't really need the whole data set, but only key features, uh, which are in most cases available and more or less stable. And uh, the most complicated system, when, when you have uh, the biggest amount of features, and you can use it only if it passes your data test and you are sure that you have the sufficient data input for it. So I believe it's my preferable design because you always can answer and you are more or less sure that your system will work in any cases. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't think I've ever come across any sort of mention of having those different levels of data, but it, it does make a lot of sense. Are there resources out there for people who want to learn more, not just about the fallback system, but about dealing with these sorts of challenges in general, or is it still mostly just in the heads of practitioners like yourself? I think it's pretty anecdotal right now. So you have to go and watch some presentations given at some conferences and gather these examples, uh, because I don't know about a single resource that would accumulate this information right now. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, me too. It's really hard to recommend something, but I agree that there are uh, some conferences in manufacturing field for steel, for aluminum, for chemical uh, industry, and it's always good to come and to listen for something or maybe find something new too. Yeah, I'm a very big fan of looking at other industries and seeing what we can pull into the into my job and into just engineering as a whole, because of course it's you're always going to have, like you said, those techniques of that are applicable not just in in one place, in net, not just in manufacturing, but also more generally. I can already start thinking of a few different places where you have different levels of of that data, and having those more robust fallback models might be an interesting thing to explore. Now, a question for Elena: What in your estimation, like how many manufacturing companies or industrial companies or in general places that you worked with do you think had robust enough data setups or how many places are, how many companies are able to utilize machine learning, have, the, have everything set up for it? Actually, I think majority of industrial companies are very well uh, suited to apply these technologies because in the end you can collect this data pretty much immediately, you already usually have the data, you just need to store it. And the major issue that's, we don't, so you don't really need to instrument your machines to collect more data in many cases. The major issue that we came across is the companies, they just throw away this data. They just don't store it 
So you actually need to just put, you know, some storage to so, uh, especially in process manufacturing, just to specify. So there is like discrete manufacturing when it produces something that comes in pieces like cars. And then there is process manufacturing like steel or then gas where you have like, some continuous flow of material. And if you look at, for example, process manufacturing, they literally have been instrumenting their machine for decades. And a lot of things that we right now are reinventing with machine learning, they are already there. And just like you said, I totally agree. There are a lot of things that we can learn from these companies as to how, for example, embed uh, decision-making that is made by a machine and combine it with the human operator, for example. So there are actually a lot of learnings, a lot of design patterns that we might learn from as machine learning practitioners, how to use fallback systems, how to do some sort of safe override of the system, when to send for manual control and so on. So like Emily mentioned, there are advanced process control systems, APC, that has been used for a few decades right now. And this is basically about the same what we are doing now. So to return to the question, I think a lot of companies are already well suited. The major problem is maybe that it actually is still very custom. So even the existing machines right now, they are almost never the same at each plant. So they are somehow like customized and a little bit unique. So you cannot just come and like uh, shift one pattern and use the same pattern on different machines. So you always have to have a specific person to look after each individual use case. And uh, this kind of stops the expansion. It cannot be as fast as you wish, so you have to actually customize it to, to each use case. But we should not underestimate the size of this opportunity. So this is literally like one third of the global GDP is this manufacturing. And I think this is one of the most amazing use cases because also it doesn't have many negative sides or many issues that other applications have. We don't have to deal with personal data, for example, here. We don't have the issues of ethics and bias and everything that you have to think through a lot when, you, when it comes to personal data. Here we're working with machines. We do have another problem that the cost of error can be actually very high because you, your plan can explode if you automate your decision wrong, right? So you don't want this to happen ever. But then the data itself is already there. The use cases are very operational and they're very stable because if it comes to production of something, you have the same machine there for 15, 20 years. It does not change overnight because you decided to change your marketing campaign or like to something changed in the outer world. So this sort of concept drift that we are talking about right now affecting all the models, right? So manufacturing doesn't have it. So there are hundreds and thousands of companies that are already applying this and we will see only more use cases. I'm confident about that. <laughs> you say that they, a lot of them are just throwing away the data. Is that just because they don't know about the the possible things that the data, applying the data science could bring to their company? Or is there some other reason why they, I, I guess it's a bit confusing to me of why they would have all these different sensors and stuff like that, and then just uh, simply throw that all away later. Just 10 years ago, when they instrumented this, no one thought about using all this data. The only reason why it is even recorded is because if you have some incident, you might want to look through and to understand why it happened. But literally storing this data seemed just a cost for these companies. Until you understood that you can actually use it for improvement, it was just some cost to store something like for, like you store paperwork for text audit or something. There was no intended user originally. Interesting. Yes. And I also believe there is a technical reason for not storing this data for a long time. I personally think that it's internet connection because now we can um, store our data in some cloud servers, right? And in manufacturing companies, 
they often prefer do not have internet access at all on the plant and just store everything in their parameters. And if you do this, it's really hard to store these uh, amounts of data. Oh yes, we usually had we often had some sort of physical machine that someone had to went yes. to go to to extract <laughs> the data first. It's literally somewhere there in the server. Oh really? It's not so you're saying that it's uh they're just it makes sense that the plant would be offline for many reasons, but it are all these machines just connected wire uh wired into maybe some like central data server and then you would have to, like you said, go and get it from that serv- from that one server or how are these mostly set up? So, so of course, the use cases we worked with, somehow they managed to extract the data. But for us, it was basically discriminant. If you could not extract the data, we just would not apply machine learning there. But in right now, of course, all these companies, they are moving towards cloud storage to some sort of central data lake. But it takes time. And a lot of the data is still there sitting on the shop floor in some physical machines or physical servers. And they might record only some of the data, and then when they run out of free space, they just basically override it all. Did you find it difficult when you're talking to these companies to convince them of the use case, or was it, or did they mostly just get it as soon as you mentioned that something might be able to be done? I think it's both, a little bit of both. So on the one side, you're talking to engineers. And these are actually people with the mathematical, statistical, physical background. So they, they understand when you explain them how you can use the data, that you need to run experiments. So they're actually like very well versed in this technology. So this is a good thing. They usually don't expect the Oracle. They're a little bit more skeptical towards whether you can actually improve over what they have been doing for ages. But this is another side. But then uh, this thing that you mentioned and also Emily said about the domain experts, this is very important thing that you need to manage efficiently. How do you uh, introduce this exchange of information and knowledge between a data scientist and someone who understands how the physical process is run? So this is very difficult. And you might face a lot of hesitation, especially just imagine. So there is like a young data scientist who has never seen this plant, who has never seen how steel is produced. And then he or she comes and says, hey, we're going to improve your process that you've been doing here for decades. We know better. Obviously, okay, you don't say this directly, but this usually does not convince people who understand the process really well. So they ask the question, have you even seen this machine? And the answer is like, no. Which machine? <laughs> so it, this can be a little bit uh, difficult, like how you build the trust and how you exchange information. So there is some, some conviction that you need to build somehow some trust. But again, here comparing to other industries, anyway, you work with engineering people and you can really, you don't need to uh, tell them what is regression, right? Or why you need to run uh, some pilot tests and A-B tests. And it's always, always good to have a lot of engineers involved in your project because you can create something more complicated and move faster. This is something I personally like about working with manufacturing companies. Yeah, me too. In terms of culture, I think that's actually amazing and, and it's a really good fit for these sort of technologies. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Compar- definitely compared to some of the other use cases that I know they don't aren't technical at all. And yeah, some explaining a lot of these process concepts must be, like you said, much easier to, to engineers. How would, what are some of the, of course, safety is a major consideration. And by working with the engineers, that's, of course, one of the best ways to make sure you're not going to blow up the factory. What on the technical side, what might be some of the other ways that you would fully ensure that your model is not going to have some catastrophic outcome? 
This is a really good question because I remember when we first um, started to work with a manufacturing case and we figured out that there are some specific expectations on how your model will behave. For example, your model uh, should behave like a physical one, follow all the material balance rules or, for example, energy balance rules. And uh, this is something that you do not have automatically for your machine learning models because it's more or less all relation-based or distance-based or something mathematical-based model. So there is no physical guarantees that you can make. But for manufacturing cases, it's important because, for example, if you're recommending specific amounts of raw materials to use, you need to make sure that if you're, for example, recommend to use more ferroalloys, then the concentration of these elements in your final product will be higher. But this is not something that you have in your machine learning model without any specific efforts. And I believe this is the biggest issue. And this is something that we worked on a lot while uh, trying to create some models. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's... Uh... Of course, a lot of ML models are more black box. And so I'm guessing that completely you can't uh, use any of the super complicated techniques that, that are completely uninterpretable. And if you're, if that is your, one of your main concerns. There are also techniques how you make ensemble models. For example, how you combine like thermodynamic models or more classical models with machine learning, either correcting the output of the first model or using one or another model based on your input. And uh, this is one of the directions that are also we were developing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think I could talk about this for like hours just because uh, it's so many different things that I haven't heard. But I do want to get move over to what you're currently working on. You had left that Mechanica AI, that uh, the startup doing this ML platform, and you saw the opportunity for working on machine learning monitoring. What can you talk a little bit about what you saw in that opportunity? Do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? I believe the biggest reason why we actually decided to move in this direction is that we faced the problem of monitoring of machine learning models in production ourselves. So when we started to put our first services in production, we figured out that there are a lot of different things that can possibly happen with your model, starting from data drift, some broken pipelines or missing data sources, and until some things like concept drift. Or... And we figured out that there are a lot of tools that you can use for uh, monitoring of any software or some um, software services. Yes. <laughs> put it like this, but it's not enough for machine learning. So anyway, we need to monitor service health, to monitor uptime, to monitor memory usage uh, and response time. But there are big layer of data-related problems that need to be uh, covered for a successful machine learning-based service. So this is why we decided to do our research in uh, this direction and to create some good tools to cover this part. We believe that there will be a lot of different machine learning-based services in many industries, and we pretty much can see it now. And we believe it's good to have some uh, nice tools that can help to monitor these cases and to make sure that we are not uh, ruining any important process or not failing any complicated decisions. Yeah, to add to this, uh, a little bit of our background from these traditional industries is actually something that suggested that we should move in this direction. Because as you can notice, like this attention to what is going on with your model, this need to actually understand it pretty deeply, it's something very peculiar when you are 
like meddling with some important processes, right? So if you're doing some, I don't know, marketing recommendations online, like you just show a wrong recommendation, you probably lose some money, but no one is actually looking at each individual use case with such attention as you do, for example, when you're optimizing production process or in telecom or in demand prediction, demand forecasting in retail, because it's actually like your core business processes and you have some domain experts who care about this a lot. And the way we look at what we're building right now is that it is a tool for data scientists and machine learning engineers, but it is also a tool for these domain experts who are very interested and who care a lot about what's happening with your model because successful adoption only happens when all the stakeholders are on board and they understand and they trust the model and they know that they can actually rely on it. Yeah, that trust, like you said, seems like such an important issue. I was just reading a a paper that came out on the challenges of deploying ML systems, uh, especially with alongside experts to help them make decisions. And it one of the things that surprised me most was there was this use case where they were talking to doctors and helping them make decisions about what they were going to do with patients. And the doctors completely distrusted the system because they thought that it was out there to to take their jobs, to replace them. And the researchers had to come in and say, no, actually, we're just trying to help you guys make better, save your patients' lives and things like that. And they ended up working with them. And there were a lot of really interesting design changes that came out of it instead of they were originally framing it as like patient automation or something like that, something an engineer would come up with. And then they had to change it to uh, something more friendly. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, it goes back to what you're saying about that communication piece and using the technical solutions to make to enhance the trust of the users in uh, in those solutions i think it's completely unsolved problem right now how to do this efficiently so i'm not even sure we are solving it directly we're just like complementing it a little bit the thing is that you need to involve the main expert not just when you frame the problem but you need to somehow communicate when you label it when you encounter some specific error your model makes you want to understand how do you want to address this so, so how do you want your model to react to this use case right or when you're analyzing model performance, it's actually a collaborative effort how exactly at the next stage you can rebuild or refresh this model more efficiently. And if there's no way how you can communicate between the data scientists and the main experts, just, just like throwing over the wall mentality, obviously there will be no trust and there will be no effective collaboration how to, to incorporate this feedback. Right? You just get complaints and then data scientists say, hey, I don't know what to do and no one uses this model in the end. And we've seen, unfortunately, that play out. <laughs> yeah, especially with, uh, I've seen some very interesting cases of, like what Emily was saying before, about the different drifts that can happen in a lot of these models as especially retail sales have completely changed during during this pandemic. One specific case I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of two, but one where top uh, sales for like fancy looking tops was uh, through the roof and then sweatpants also was also through the roof. That completely changed. Yeah, that's a nice combo. <laughs> <laughs> of course, from before, and also Instacart, grocery delivery people, yeah. of course, completely changed their buying habits. So can you talk a little bit about, Emily, about the different kinds of drift and how they they might be handled both by both in the general case and also by your own software? Uh, yeah, sure. I believe data drift is something that, that, that we need to monitor because it can be interpreted as early stage monitoring, right? It's something that you can catch before actually your model starts 
failing and making uh, huge errors. And there is two biggest kinds of data drift. First is continuous drift, when your drift accumulates in over time by small pieces. And in this case, you can, for example, detect it early and just retrain your model on the newer data set to make sure that your model account for these small changes. And it's also good to monitor it because I know there is some companies who just uh, retrain their models on a schedule because it's not too complicated process and you can just retrain it, uh, calculate quality metrics and push your model into production, especially if it's lightweight and you do not need to stop any uh, real-time process, processes to do it. But I believe it still makes sense to calculate this data drift because you can decide actually whether you need to retrain your model, do you have enough new data and whether your new model will some will be somehow different compared to your previous one. And this is why it makes sense to measure continuous data drift. And there can be like a gradual data drift. This is the cases when something changes drastically overnight in your data. And this is the cases, these cases, it's really hard to miss it because you like see it immediately on any monitoring you have, have quality monitoring, some business metrics monitoring. If you have anything, you will probably see it, but it's really hard to somehow get prepared for it. Because in these cases, I believe you need to retrain your model completely, maybe remove older data from your dataset, or maybe change the schema of model training and model application, or maybe even switch your system from machine learning model to some statistical one or to manual fork, right? I believe this gradual data drift is something that you find anyway, and there is no need to create some specific tools to monitor and catch it. The dramatic drift is hard to miss, even when it happens. Yeah, but uh, actually, to add a little bit to this, there is also uh, really data quality issues, which are not uh, necessarily tell you something about the world, but they happen a lot. So just something broke upstream, you had a change in schema, just some sensor broke, right? So some, so like data is not written, telemetry went wrong. So whatever happens, you want to catch it basically because it affects your model. And this is a little bit of different way of monitoring your data. For example, right now, there are like a few startups that are doing data quality monitoring at the level of a data warehouse, which is absolutely the right thing to do. You just want to make sure that all your data you have is in the right shape, is fresh and so on. But then when it comes to the machine learning model, you want to monitor specifically the parts of the data that goes into this model, right? Because it might be like 0.01% of your whole database, but this is exactly what went wrong for this specific model. And you want to catch it. And you want to understand where exactly it happens and then decide maybe your model can do without it. Or maybe you just need to urgently stop it because nothing good will come out of it. And you don't want to hear about it from your users. And this is unfortunately what we heard a lot, that many companies, they treat this monitoring as an afterthought. And then when only something happens, they look into, your, into the model. Or they do it, I don't know, every month, every three months, they just look at the logs and analyze what's going on, but they don't do it proactively, not even uh, just checking some very basic things in terms of model performance, which is surprising. But we are very early in the adoption curve, so probably three, four years from now, no one will ever hear this again, but right now that is where we are at. We've definitely, in my job, I've definitely faced some of these issues where you put a model into production and you have maybe trained it off of you pulled data directly from your data warehouse and then you trained it offline in like bat that batch format. 
And then when you go to deploy it, of course, you are you think, oh, the accuracy was 98% on the on this training process. Should be 98% in production. And you it just doesn't Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you don't and most of the people who are putting these things into production, speaking of myself, don't really have any of the a background in monitoring, since most of our background was just working with data science and uh, making the model and not necessarily deploying it. So I definitely agree that it's a use case that a lot more people are starting to think is more and more important. Is there a particular, beyond just the mistake of not even monitoring a lot of this at all, are there some other common mistakes that you generally see in people monitoring their models? We'll start with Emily. Uh, I believe, yes, there are some quite patterns that uh, we saw. First, I believe, is waiting for ground truth or for feedback before you actually start monitor uh, things and calculate metrics, because there are different uh, use cases we mentioned before. For example, some demand forecasts, and if you solve demand forecasts problem, you can have different horizons for prediction, right? You can forecast something like next hour or you can forecast something for next month and if it's uh, next hour then it's really easy just to wait for an hour and then you have your ground truth and you can calculate all the quality metrics you like accuracy year and many different things so it's uh, more or less comfortable to stop monitoring in this case but if you have longer prediction horizon like months or week often people just act the same and just waiting for this time to get feedback. And I believe it's better to come up with some other alternative uh, ways to monitor data. For example, measure, measuring uh, the different statistical um, metrics or analyze the output of model, for example, because, well, if the model output changes, it gives you an indirect signal that something went wrong or at least that something has changed. So I believe this is the one of the biggest issues and is just, as Elena mentioned, uh, a lot of companies do not monitor the machine learning services right now, but there is another uh, side of this model. It's over alerting, right? Because if uh, it comes to uh, some standard software services, you always alert someone when you have some unexpected value or some small issues because you just know exactly what output you should get. And if it's not like this, then it's a year. But for machine learning models, there are uh, a lot of data that are used as input features, and some of these features are really important, and others are just additional. And if you alert someone, everyone, when your uh, additional feature starts changes a bit, it will be really hard to concentrate on important issues, and people will just ignore all your alerts, I believe. So I think another problem is over-alerting and people need to really care about scenarios, about person who should answer one or another problem with data and try to reduce the amount of alerts. Yeah. <laughs> one more thing to add is also monitoring the business metrics of the model. Of course, it's not always easy, right? So not always you can just directly connect a KPI from some business metric to the model performance. But it's very important to do it at least from time to time as maybe some sort of separate process because it's very easy to continue saying, hey, my model does well, so I don't care what's going on. But in the end, you are just uh, using this model to solve some business problems. So there should be some way to directly or indirectly monitor this. And 
we've seen in many cases that the actual use of the model is different from the intended use of the model. Because uh, your business users, for example, they just take some, take some scores that you, you scored your customers and then somehow on their own decide what to do with these predictions. Then you might be happily thinking that your model performs, but then in the end it's misused and uh, not delivering the result. And maybe you should just have a different model architecture whatsoever to account for how it's actually used instead. And so this sort of learning, you want to get it before some big boss comes and asks, hey, are we actually getting value from machine learning? What are these uh, highly paid guys doing in my company? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I am thinking specifically of a case where for recommender systems, I know that the reflexivity of the loop is a particularly pernicious issue sometimes where you might present the user with something. And even though it is something that they wanted to wanted to click on, it might that might not have been their original intent. And thus, by even showing them a different result than you might have with a different system, you are changing the user's behavior in general and like, in some ways degrading the data quality. And it's the only way to figure that out is through finding, is through getting those business metrics at the end of what the model is actually, what the change in the model has actually done. Of course, it's not always easy. You cannot always A-B test. You cannot always like directly attribute the effect. But at least you should have this thought and you have some process to find some proxy for that. So you you don't want to have useless models. No no one wants highly accurate, but useless model. That's the biggest pain, right? Is there some way, of course, collaboration is going to play a big part in this, but are there, and this might be too broad of a question in general, but are there some best practices that you've seen that you've used for tying tying KPIs to two models in general, like it having a, a central dashboard where both are in one place or anything like that? I think one way is just to put together in one room the business experts and the data scientists and actually have the data scientists explain the meaning of different metrics. Because I cannot count ways how many times I had to explain the difference between precision and recall and how to interpret this metric. It's very confusing, right? This confusion metrics is really very confusing for most business users, right? And then uh, you might have come have a data scientist who presents the results of the model. They show something like area under curve. The business user noticed some 90-something percent and is happy. But in the end, no one actually understands what this performance of the model means. And there are ways how you can try to explain it, how you can communicate it better. You can show some specific segments of your model performance. You can look at specific, for example, groups of customers, like, I don't know, VIP customers or some groups of high interest, see how the model performs there and find some uh, good proxy. For example, we always need to know that the model performs well on this group of customers because they're very high risk or they're very important. We want to monitor it. And then you would set a separate alert or separate KPI or separate way to monitor this. Or you might come up with some proxy like, we are uh, okay tolerating the error, which is the absolute error, which is less than 100. But when it's more than 100, tell it to us because we will figure out what we need to do. So you can come up with some sort of agreement, which will not be 100% precise because it's impossible, but this will give you good trust and understanding that you're keeping an eye at least on what's going on. Yeah, that's super interesting. Definitely going to have to think about how I can implement that. <laughs> to go on to some of the, to what specifically you're building, Emily, maybe you can go over some of the exact features of what Evidently has done thus far. Sure. Now I have only like first, very first version of our product. And right now I have three different 
kinds of reports that can be generated with help of evidently it's a date drift report target drift report and we soon are going to public regression validation or we call it regression <laughs> performance monitoring yeah we just uh, discussed this today how we should call it <laughs> yeah so now it's regression performance monitoring and it's interesting because for data drift you do not need anything instead of features to calculate actually is there any difference between your reference data and your production data for example or between your training and testing data so it's something that you can use when you have just your first piece of data then target drift it's interesting because uh, it can help you to figure out is if something changes in your target or maybe something changed in your predictions. So it's interesting when you have uh, your model working in batch or in real time and you need to make sure that everything is okay. And finally, if it's regression problem and you have some ground truth, then our regression performance uh, report is something that you can, and we are going to add to this report some segments analysis. So that's uh, a direct link to what Elena just said about measuring quality on some specific groups of users, for example, on, on some specific regions of feature values. All right, we are going to add it to our report and I believe it will help analysts and data scientists to figure out where uh, exactly their model fail and uh, to come up with some solutions, what they can do to keep model on track. Yeah, I love the uh, graphs that you've been able to build there. So it's so much better than what I was previously doing uh, that I just spun up myself with PyPlot. And it's, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to it's actually surprising in a lot of ways that this, that something like this didn't exist before, because a lot of these statistical tests, of course, they're very classical and it's and very useful to a lot of work that people are doing. And so it's really great that you are making it open source. And maybe, Elena, you can talk about that decision to build it open source in general. It's a very interesting business model. Actually, right now it's becoming pretty popular. So I must say they are not pioneers here. So we already have a few companies that are successfully building commercial businesses based on open source solutions, right? So we are following the steps from like GitLab, MongoDB, and like a lot of uh, companies that did this before. But there are actually several reasons why we're doing this open source. First of all, is that we actually want to establish best practices and we actually want them to be used by a wide variety of companies. And even though some of them might not be ready to use some sort of commercial solution for monitoring just because they're just starting up, or they are not yet having this as a direct pain they're ready to pay for solving it, we want this thing to be available to a large group of users who can contribute, who can give us feedback, and who, whom we can collaborate with to build these best practices. Second is that it's actually a pretty efficient distribution model. So there is uh, some strategic reasoning behind this. We understand that this sort of bottom-up adoption, when the user can just get the tool and start using it immediately, it actually makes a lot of sense when you're working with large enterprises, because if you are doing so-called top-down sales, you have to come and you have to spend months for them just to try it, because you need to transfer data, because they need to send data. So Opens gives you a really fast feedback loop, which is also important for us as a startup. We People use it, they tell us if they like it, like immediately, you can download this now. People who are listening can download it and write something to us and we will change something. So this is a very efficient way to, to collect this feedback. So I would say this, so it's a, there is a business answer behind this. There is a vision why we believe it's the right thing. And in general, I personally enjoy open source culture, even though I'm not a developer myself. I think it's just uh, 
good thing to do. And there are a lot of great people who are like very open to contributing, to exchanging, to collaborating. And I really enjoy this sort of like community building around it. So I think it's uh, just a very pleasant way of building even commercial products. If someone is listening right now and it's, like you said, open source, so they can go try it at any time, what might you suggest as something that where they can see the value of it right away, like a, I don't know, best practices, so to speak, of how to use it and uh, where they might get the most value out of it? Mm -hmm. So right now, what you have is a way to generate reports, putting in uh, data that is prepared as a Pandas data frame that would usually be like your training and your production data. So it makes sense to use it with batch models. Or when you have uh, some sort of a regular checkup, you would just want to understand how well your model is doing. So right now, for example, if you're running on a weekly basis, your demand prediction model or something similar, every time you run it or every time you get a new feedback, you might want to generate these reports just to understand how well your model is doing. Maybe there are some issues that you want to address, or maybe you just use it as a report. You have a sanity check on a regular basis that you just want to schedule to receive weekly. So to monitor, to keep an eye on, to check on your production model, that is like the use case number one. Second is when you actually notice that something went wrong and you're trying to understand why and how to solve it, all these plots that's uh, kudos to Emily, that's uh, the credit goes to her. Actually, these are very helpful ways to investigate and debug your model performance that might point you to the issue immediately. So where exactly you're failing, on which segment, where do you need to label more data, these sort of things. And third, which is actually before production, when you're doing a model validation, maybe model acceptance test, or interpreting the results of tests, this is something that we actually want to contribute a lot. And if someone who's listening is interested, let's talk, is that right now the model acceptance or the model validation is very often limited to just one single metric. You just check the accuracy and you're good to go. We actually think that in many cases you should do like a more in-depth understanding of the model performance, discuss it with your uh, business experts, with your users to actually better understand what to expect from your model. And we want to contribute to developing some best practices around this. So you can also use our reports uh, as a way to analyze the model performance before you put it in production after you build it, after maybe you run a test or some sort of shadow deployment, to actually understand, for example, where is my model making errors and what sorts of errors does it make and maybe decides uh, how you want to build your business process around it. That's a really great answer. Very thorough. <laughs> and I like the acceptance test part of it, especially where I can imagine in just having it in something like uh, CI, like Jenkins, where you're taking that most recent run, just pulling down the model and then having it output the the HTML interactive page that that you have to be able to just, like you said, maybe on whatever basis your model is running, be able to see if there's early detect in a lot of ways, if there's anything going wrong with that. Do you have any sort of plans for dealing with streaming data or models that are run on a real-time basis or ways to best practices to adapt what uh, you've done so far for that? We're starting up with the reports, but the end vision is, of course, not the report. <laughs> so we want to build uh, something that you can use as a service. You can connect and uh, actually generate alerts and set up some sort of a monitoring strategy around it. So this is the, the end vision that we are building towards. But we decided to start with the reports, first of all, because it's a very easy way to, to use it, to start using it. We just want to test it. And we want to uh, understand a little bit better about how people would actually be using what sorts of models they're working with. 
because what we're building right now, we spoke to a lot of teams, right? But uh, now when we're gathering actual feedback, we understand more <laughs> about how it can actually be used, what sorts of use cases you're dealing with. And before it is available as a service, we want to gather like more requirements and understand a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. Emily, do you have anything to add on the technical vision for more of the of what you think might be really valuable to to add to this? Of course, like Lena said, you've talked to a lot of teams and been able to get a sense of what their needs have been. Uh, sure. Yeah, indeed, we are going to build a service that will be uh, available uh, as a service, for example, to work with uh, real-time data. And we are going to have uh, a lot of different connectors to make sure that if you store your data in like any, I believe, database or data store, you can actually use uh, this service. And in terms uh, of infrastructure, we already have some specific uh, parts where you can have some alerts and insights and this is also will be implemented later so we are going to add some interesting maybe facts or alerts to uh, draw, uh, draw your attention at when we solve for example some specific problems or broken statistical tests or maybe interesting observations or examples and this is something that we actually want to implement a lot the idea is that you might want to monitor something with you define thresholds but then the other side is actually to provide you with insight that you might not have been directly looking for, but can actually help you to understand what's going on with your model, how to improve it. That sounds amazing. It's a little bit difficult to implement it, generalized for all sorts of models. So we're like gathering some uh, more feedback and more ideas how to do this. But we believe this is the direction where it should go. Of course, straightforward monitoring is very helpful. A report where you can analyze on your own by applying your judgments is also helpful, but then the end vision is basically to help get information in front of you without maybe even you asking. In talking to a lot of these teams is a, a bit of a, a switch, but in talking to a lot of these teams, I know my team specifically, we deal with mostly complex data, specifically images. And so we're using a lot of, we're using deep learning. Have you come across any that have good monitoring solutions to detect irregularities in complex data because uh, obviously your solution and a lot of these statistical tests are only for uh, numerical, categorical, and not uh, complex. Emily, maybe you can take that. Yeah, we talked uh, a lot indeed with uh, different companies and we were surprised that there are a lot of uh, use cases uh, related to text data, actually. So we are not expected that, but we saw it and it's sometimes quite hard to come up with good monitoring solution for complicated data because it's, I believe it's because it's harder to create some good expectations for how your data should look like. And I personally like a very customized approach where, for example, you know what, if you're talking about natural language processing, when what topics are urgent for you and you create some specific metrics covering these specific topics or terms uh, of or some specific sentences that you expect to have or vice versa do not expect to have. For complicated types of data, it's at least for now more customized and everybody come up with their own specific solution. It's also that the actual feedback loop is varying, right? So in many cases, you do not actually get ground truth. You might have to label your data additionally or you might have some sort of a golden set that you compare your performance on. So it's a little bit harder to generalize. And uh, a lot of things that we've seen is just 
some sort of a custom heuristics or solutions that each team kind of reinvents on their own. Yeah, I know that all of our solutions for this are definitely custom for our specific use cases. As an example, we have one of the use cases we deal with is receipts. And at the very start of the project, we were once it was deployed, we were suddenly seeing a large spike in inaccuracies from one specific customer. And we were looking into it and it turned out that the receipts that they were, that this one like salesperson was submitting were all handwritten from like the, from, I don't know, their favorite like uh, hotel or so, or some like boutique uh, bakery or something. And uh, of course, like reading numbers ends up that are handwritten ends up being a lot different than reading numbers that are in text. And so we yeah, had to spin up a custom like autoencoder solution to be able to figure out, create a representation of like those two different things. But uh, at the very minimum, you have to notice it. So you know that you're underperforming. At least you got an alert or some sort of feedback. Uh, yeah, feedback from the customer at that point. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, human, user-based monitoring. That's how we call it. <laughs> when user comes complaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so what would you, what do you see? We already talked about a little bit of, of your technical roadmap. What are you looking forward to in maybe the next year or so on the business side, driving adoption and trying to get people to use this? What are some of the, those initiatives? We want to connect with as many teams as possible. So we basically like have fluctuating modes, right? So we were building something and then we're like, we're going out to collect feedback. Right now we'll be releasing a couple of more reports and then we'll go into this feedback collection mode again. We are a startup after all, so we expect to iterate a lot. One thing we right now are believing in is that uh, these sort of applications are mostly useful for these traditional companies, just like we worked with, where you have uh, domain experts, where you need to deeply understand what's going on because you actually care about the details of your model performance. So we want to talk to these companies to understand how it is evolving. It is incredible that every year you have something new, so you cannot just stay say, okay, this is the status quo that we're addressing. So we constantly have to understand how other companies that you want to work with are deploying machine learning. There are several different trends in, for example, how the teams are formed, how the roles in the teams are divided. We still don't know what will be the ultimate design. For example, the sort of MLOps and model monitoring, will it be like a separate uh, team that is uh, keeping an eye on production model? Or is it the same data scientist who build the model if you direct it, uh, direct to, to resolve the issue and so on? So we want to understand it better. And so we're always happy to chat with anyone who is dealing with similar issues. And let's see. So we hope that this service will be available this year. So you can actually use it for more real-time use cases. Great. And if people want to find out more about what you're doing, about you individually, where should they, where should they go? GitHub, Twitter, LinkedIn. <laughs> I guess we can send the links. It's evidently AI. So whenever you search, uh, you'll find us on GitHub and on Twitter. And myself and Emily, we also have a pretty boring handles, which is our names and surnames. <laughs> so we should be pretty discoverable. Yep. And I'll uh, put those in the, put those links in the description below. So people will be able to check those out. And now wrapping up a little bit, is there anything that we didn't cover that you may, that you think was, is, might be interesting to talk about further? I think it's a pretty comprehensive talk. There are so many adjacent topics like explainability or model trust that we're always happy to chat, but I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> Great. And now I want to move on to some of the rapid fire questions that I know our audience likes to hear from 
so much. So maybe for each of these, we'll start with Elena and then Emily can answer afterwards. So first of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work? Uh, I used to like to travel. It's not uh, <laughs> last year uh, has been pretty low on this. But for me, it's like a great source of inspiration, like traveling to different places. I like photography, also trail photography. And right now it's uh, taking a lot of walks whenever I can. So that's uh, the best replacement for travel you can get, discovering the place you live in. I'm a big fan of sport. I dedicate like a lot of my free time to basketball because I'm a huge fan and I'm playing myself. So yeah, that's pretty much it. And next... What book or books do you most often recommend to others? I think if talking about like generalizable books that I recommend to different people from different backgrounds, there is the book Thinking Fast and Slow. And then there is also the book called Flow, which both, I think, uh, tell a lot about how our brain works. And I find this sort of self-awareness really helpful, like understanding how your brain makes decisions, how it tricks you, what actually works for you. And whatnot, and uh, I recommend it to like wide audience. These are the two books that I definitely recommend to read. I think I recommend books comparably rare, but because in most cases, if I do recommend something, it's about data science for, for either for my friends or data science students. So it's the whole standard list. But when it comes to some general recommendation, I would say it will be book doing good better. Just because it's nice, it's uh, easy reading, and it uh, helps you to uh, figure out how to find uh, your uh, perfect job, for example, or how to uh, find something you love in your life. And uh, I also recommend people to read not only uh, some technical books or books suitable for their professions, but uh, remember that reading is actually fun also so it's good sometimes to read something just to feel better <laughs> yeah and read fiction <laughs> <laughs> why not yeah i think a lot of people in tech uh, definitely underread fiction books <laughs> next is what advice would you give to someone just starting out in starting out in the field so maybe for elena we'll say someone starting out with starting their own business I think you should understand why you're doing that. So if you want to start a business, because I've seen many people want to start a business for all the wrong reasons. And I think you should not be doing it, you know, for money because you want to get rich fast. It's definitely not exactly <laughs> the way to. I think you should be uh, really caring about creating this sort of business. And so find something that resonates with you. You don't necessarily have to be in love with the problem, but you have to care and understand, be self-aware why you're doing this. So maybe the answers might be different, but don't do it for the hype. Don't do it because others do it. So try to find your own answer to that. Mm -hmm. And for Emily, you we didn't really touch on it, but you are a prolific machine learning instructor. What advice would you give for some of your students? I would say that it's good to remember that data science is actually an engineering profession. I would recommend to all uh, young specialists to invest uh, a lot of time into engineering, into programming, into math, and only after this move to more interesting or fancy things like machine learning, neural networks, and so on. Because nowadays there are a lot of really nice tools and 
pretty much everyone can do pip install something, then train, then apply, right? It's not that complicated, but it's always good to deeply understand what you are doing and why you're doing it and how you're going to apply it to some specific problem statement. So I would recommend to invest a lot of time into engineering and math skills. Yeah, for sure. Always get the fundamentals down first. Now, the last two are my personal favorites. What have you recently changed your mind on? Maybe not recently, but actually one thing that I changed my mind on while being in this machine learning kind of community and thing is that not all companies need machine learning, right? So you should not be just jumping on the hype train because it's a cool thing to do. Sometimes you just need to get the basics right. Sometimes the value that you get will not be as meaningful. And as a company, you better invest in something else. And maybe in the beginning of my career, especially in the beginning of this technology adoption kind of curve, it was interesting just to apply it everywhere you can, just to actually understand if it works, right? To figure it out if it works. Now, I think companies should be more realistic in prioritizing these cases, in choosing where to focus. And it's an amazing technology. You can do a lot of great things with it, right? It's just that you should not be thinking about it as a first solution. Very often, the right solution to a problem is not using machine learning at all or not using it at the start, not even to mention deep learning. So the default version of doing deep learning is something that is deeply flawed in the industry, I think. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's uh, one, when you get to a machine learning or a deep learning solution and you didn't uh, build up the ladder of starting simple, it's when the deep learning solution doesn't work, you're in limbo. You like don't know where it actually went wrong. So definitely agree with that. And Emily? I have some more, let's say, general thoughts on this. When I was younger, I felt somehow guilty for having some hobbies. And I felt like every time I go to play basketball or do some sport, I like steal some time from my career. And uh, it's not the best way to live. But now I'm getting older. <laughs> and uh, now I feel like it's something that you need to do, actually, because it helps you to feel better and to boost your career, actually. So now I believe that it's something absolutely normal and even good. Yeah, have a life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something that I'm trying to get better at investing in hobbies. I think uh, when when lockdown happened, it, it's so easy to just like uh, work all the time and uh, not do anything else, especially if you have, like you said, hobbies that are mostly based on traveling or sports elsewhere. Yeah. And lastly, what important truth do few people agree with you on? Well, maybe not few, but these days there are two camps, those who like remote work and those who want to go back to the office. I'm actually a huge proponent of remote work. And I think it opens up so many possibilities on the personal level that many people actually miss out because it, it needs it requires you to change the attitude and think a little bit out of the usual patterns. But like working and like living somewhere for a little bit and exploring different places and constructing your life in a way it's actually comfortable for you, I think that's an amazing opportunity. And um, I'm hopeful that there is some silver lining of all this pandemic is actually that this will become more mainstream. Before you had to turn yourself into digital nomad, you know, to become an entrepreneur, to make this work. Now you can, even with more like uh, mainstream jobs, you can do this. And uh, it's an amazing opportunity. We should all tap into it. Of course, not all this works. Circumstances differ. Some jobs differ. But I'm such a huge fan of this. So I think everyone should, should think through what it opens up, not just think about the negative side of working from home.
Okay. <laughs> Actually, I agree. But yeah, I need now to come up with something else <laughs> because I'm also a big fan of uh, working remotely. I would say I believe that it's not necessary to be uh, absolutely in love with some topic to become a good specialist or even expert. It's good enough to start working on topic which gives you like moderate interest. Because in some sense, it's even better because it will help you to have good uh, work-life balance. And it doesn't mean that if you are not in love like with us, you cannot do it. Why not? You can. So I suggest be more practical with choosing your uh, profession and maybe with choosing what to learn. So we seem to agree on our contrarian points. <laughs> well, yeah. that's probably why you're both co-founders together then. <laughs> yeah. We're a good team. All right. We are at the end of our time block recording time. I want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast. This was a really interesting conversation from learning all about your background in applying it at many different custom cost companies at many different industries. And then now into what you're building with your monitoring solutions at Evidently AI. So again, Emily, Elena, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Engineered.com.